The task before me is a topic that is balance and focus. And I got to thinking about it. I've got so much on balance, but I was afraid I'd leave out focus or run out of time. So I thought I would start with the back part first. When I think of, here's the banner, focusing on Christ. When I think of focusing on Christ, and, and I just think through all the teachings. So we've got all the Gospels. We've got the New Testament, all the letters. When I think of all the writings, and I think of, if I were to sum it down about focus, I had three passages just came out to me. So what we're going to do, Charlie, do the roving mic. So what we'll do, I like, as y'all know, I like everybody participating. Turn to Matthew 6. I have three references, but I want to read context. So turn to Matthew 6. Before we get there, go back to Matthew 1. And we're going to leaf through. So in Matthew 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. The wise men come to visit, then the flight to Egypt, then the slaughter by Herod of the babies, then here comes John the Baptist in three, and then you have the baptism of Jesus, and then he was led by the wilderness, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Then right after that, he's calling guys to follow. And then you have him traveling and preaching and teaching. And then it's the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is 5, 6, and 7. Now, early on in my Christian life, I went to a one-week-long conference, Instituting Basic Youth Conflicts by Bill Gothard. That was really good. It helped me out. He made a statement that I thought was really interesting. And since then, I... I I personally think it's correct. The majority of Jesus' teaching is in three chapters, Sermon on the Mount. And what you'll find as you read through the gospel, he'll take little pieces here, there, and yon and quote, but it's all there, but then it's, it's all in the other gospels. And so he uses this teaching, this combined teaching. And in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6. So when did, when did the Sermon on the Mount happen? Well, it wasn't way later. It was real up front. It was probably within the first few months of his ministry. Matthew 6, let's start reading with verse 24. And I like doing two at a time, no matter what translation it is, and we'll just do two at a time. So 24 and 25, Dante. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap. Or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If you think about this, all he's talking about is the way we live every day, all day. We're concerned about the stuff of life. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? Now, he, he did, Dante's uh, said, let's see, you cannot serve God in, what was it? Wealth. Others say money. This translation here, the New American way back, says mammon or riches. The King James is mammon. It's like the world's system. The world operates on money and wealth. Now, does that mean we don't, we don't, not supposed to earn a living? No. Does it mean, doesn't mean... So see, it's, it's, it's this precarious thing. But what's our focus? So see here, it's like the typical person is focused on this world system, getting ahead, money runs the show, and then you've got food and drink and clothes, so you might say the necessities of life. You've got housing, transportation, you've got all this stuff falls in this category. What's he saying? It's interesting. Verse 33 is the punch verse that I'm going for. It's very familiar to us. Right before, he notices the Gentiles. Now there's Jew-Gentile. So it's like extrapolating through Christ, it's believer, non-believer. So we're the, the believer, and the Gentile is those in the world that's not in Christ. And all they live for is what we've been talking about. That's it. It. But what's he doing? He's drawing a contrast between a value system, really. So he starts out with a value system. 33 hits a value system. The value system in 24 gives way to all the stuff where you worry over from, from 24 down to 30 through 32. But what are we to seek? Kingdom and righteousness. Now, I just got to thinking about this, and I know you have. How many have learned Matthew 6.33? I don't see a show of hands. If you can quote it. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Just the room. Well, if you've learned it and you meditate on it and you've thought it through. Well, when you say, seek first his righteousness. When I see that, I think of that as my, a product of my relationship with him. It's personal holiness. Personal holiness is not me trying better. It's me in a relationship with him, him guiding me and leading me in my life. So it hits this area and this area and this area. So it's a quality thing. It's a godly thing, me growing. Then when I see kingdom, I, so I think of holiness, it's in me. When I see kingdom, I think it's out there. So I touch people. It's the kingdom of God expanding. Now, let's let, who's next? Larry Odom. Would you look up? Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. John the Baptist's message was repent. Jesus' message is believe the gospel, the good news. But he was ushering in the kingdom. It's a new era. It was the law and the, the Jewish world that God had set up from the Old Testament. Jesus is in, in, ushering in the New Testament. And so he's saying the kingdom. He's, he's saying repent and believe. Well, it's out there. It's leading people to Christ. It's helping people come into the kingdom. So this person, it's, it's interesting that he would take 24 through 32 in Matthew 6, and then he contrasts that with one verse. That's what he's doing. Because he starts in 33 with but. So he's got a layout of a value system. 24 is the value system. Two masters. There's God in this system that has money as the driving force. And then it generates all the things that we all have to live with anyway. We all have to do all the things in between. So then what gives? Well, I asked David to. He denied it, but that's all right. He made a point one time in a talk that has never left me. He said, you may look around, you may not know what to do, but you know what to do first. You know what first to do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness being you, kingdom being your world. And then trust God for the rest. Does that mean you don't work? No. Does that mean you don't earn money? No. It doesn't mean that. But what are you living for? What's your first priority? So I wanted to start with focusing on Christ. This is dead on in the middle of his ministry, right, right at the first of his ministry, but it's like in the middle of life. So in 34, see, we get all torn up over it. 24 through 32 is a whole description of a system. But in 33, with two things that are valued that he wants us to focus on as priority. And then he says, he promises that he'll take care of the things above. And then 34, let's don't, let's don't worry about it. It's too much worry. We get to thinking of tomorrow. Don't do that. He said, just wait. Like surrender the day tomorrow and it'll take care of itself. You focus on righteousness. Now, when I think of focusing on Christ, our theme, I think of this little passage. It just comes to mind. So that's real life. I've got to live that out. Tomorrow, the next day, when I leave here, every day, of, every day I've got to live this out. It's just going to be there. All right, now let's turn to a key passage we all know. When I think of focusing on Christ, the second one is John 15. Every one of these, you're going to know them. You should, be, you should know them and, and probably quote them. John 15. And I want to read 1 through 5. So two verses each. Maybe the first one read one through three and then four and five. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me and bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I abide in you, just as the branch cannot produce fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who abide in me, 
and I in them will bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Well, he sets up this analogy. They all were familiar with the vine and with the branches, with a vineyard, with grapes. That was a staple in this world. We moved to Murfreesboro in 1986. The house we bought had some grapevines in the back. It was a corner post, a post, and a post, and the fence went down like that, three strands, and there was a vine right there, and there, and there. In the middle, sorry. And so they would grow up. Well, it's several feet, so they could, each vine would grow up, and the branches would go out like that. Well, I knew the passage and the concepts, but I had never dealt much with vines. I, I really hadn't. And a funny thing is, um, a good friend of, uh, some of y'all might know Stephen Wick, he worked in vineyards upstate New York in high school. And we were, we were meeting one time, he came over to the house, and we were talking about vines, he knew them well. So he had been trained in vineyards. So he came over, and we pruned that thing. Well, I had pruned it. I thought I pruned it. I just snipped a little bit. He looked at that and said, it needs pruning. I said, well, I pruned it. He said, nope, didn't prune it. I said, he said, you just trimmed some things. He said, uh, let's plant. So we figured a time, and he came over, we pruned it. Man, I thought we killed it. I mean, he, he when you really, when you have somebody that knows how to prune a vine, because what happens is it pulls up, the, the vine is the stump. The vine was about that tall, that's it. And all the rest were branches just coming out, coming out. Each year it puts on wood, and it has to maintain the wood. So then it can't, so you have to have wood and then new little, little branches and then leaves and then grapes. Grapes is the last thing. And if you spend all the juice maintaining the wood and putting on new wood, you don't get any more grapes. So if you had all that wood from last season, it'd grow more wood and no grapes. So he pulled back to have one little runner going this way and one little runner that way and one little runner that way. And then off all of them was new growth and then grapes. And then the next year, you have one runner and one runner. But I had, it's all a mass. He said, you won't get any grapes the way you've got it. So the pruning is very crucial for the, for the vine to produce grapes. And when we would cut, I looked in, one about that big, and there was a little tube as a hole. I almost put my finger in it, and the juice would just run out. So you cut, and it just run and drip and drip and drip. It was amazing. It was so profuse, just running inside of that, that piece of wood. And so the, the vine was the source for the branches. If you cut the branch, you see it dripping, and you see how the life was in it. You take it away. So it's so crucial. The branch has to be plugged into the vine. The pruning removes it. And so you see the connection. So he's saying that you've got to stay plugged in him. Now you go, okay, wait. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can brush my teeth. I can drive my car. I can go to work. So it must, he must not be, this is not like an absolute thing. So he's talking about, hmm, maybe he's talking about similar to Matthew uh, 6.33, where it's his righteousness 
the fruit of God in my life, whether character and personal or whether the impact with other people, see, I can't do that. I can't just grunt and have effort and do the things of God without being connected with Him like the branch to the vine where the juice will flow. That's what he's talking about. Now, get the setting. The setting is what's key, I think. So starting in 13, he's in the upper room, chapter 13. And he's, he's dealing with them. So they have the, the supper, the betrayal, the, the washing of the feet, the, all the discourse of 14, 15, 16, the prayer in 17. Well, this is kind of the core. So he's dealing with the 12 alone. And this was after supper. This would have been like, I don't know, eight, nine at night. And then, you know, he was going to get betrayed and arrested later, like midnight. He was going to go through all night. And, and then he gets beaten and then he gets killed the next day. I mean, he's within 12 hours of dying. Something like that. And he knows it. So there, there's just 12 guys there. And this is what he's telling them. Now think of that. What's going to rest on them is the future of the faith he's starting by his life. That's what's going to rest on them. So how are they going to carry that out? That's what he's here. This is like a crux teaching of the time he had with them right before. So how important is this? I'd say very important. It's right at the end. He's been with them three years. So he's winding up and he's, and he's winding it up. I just love John 13 through 17, and 15 is right in the core. So he wanted them to remember it. It's very important. It's their last night. They've been with him three years. There's 12 guys, and he's poured his life and heart into them. I mean, this vine analogy is so true. So if I'm thinking of focusing on Christ, I've got to deal with life. I've got to deal with a system of the world out there that pulls on me all the time to go after its values. But... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And these things, he's going to take care of that. Now, you've got to work too. I mean, you know, he's, he'll take care of that. But then he sees this, is a, um, this isn't go-to-work kind of stuff. This is like me and heart abiding in him. That's got to be there. And then the la- I think of the third one is one we go to a lot. Matthew 28, 18, 20, the Great Commission. We use this as our Great Commission. Turn over there. Was it Matthew 28, 18? All right. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always at the end of, to the end of the age. So at the very end. Now how important is this? So that one was when he was with them, getting to focus in the John 15. This is at the very end. He's died, he's risen, he's been with them about 40 days. He's, he's ready to leave to ascend. And he has them, and he hits this. Now this is one of, in my mind, about... Let's see. I think seven places where this is where he, very important. So he's got their, this is his charge to them. It's 18 is so crucial. He's saying, 
God, the Father, has placed all authority in my hands. I have the authority. Therefore, I'm charging you. So he's over all governments. He's over all institutions of man. All authority. And then he gives them the charge. Go and make disciples. And he expounds on that. And then he promises his presence. So then I think, if I'm going to focus on Christ, I've got to be about doing this. But see, I can't go make disciples if I'm not one. How do you do that? That's not... I can't make a disciple. I can't obey this unless I am one. But see, 633 is me doing it in life. 15, 4, and 5 is the crux of focusing on Christ for power. But then this will flow out. So, as I was thinking about my message, I thought, if I pull like three different places in his ministry where it was really connected, this would be it as far as in my little way of thinking about it. Now, beyond focus, I've got to look at my life. It's the idea of balance. So I wanted to go there next. Tell a story first. I remember talking with John Crawford one time. I was going to I was going to give a message. I think somebody had asked me to come speak or something. And I, I talked to him about using his talk. And I said, I feel bad because, you know, you gave this, and I'm, I'm studying it up, and um, I'm going to give it. And I, it's like plagiarism or something. Now, how many know 2 Timothy 2.2? Raise your hand. Okay, a bunch. All right. Go to Scott and let him uh, quote it for us. While talking to Timothy, the things which you have heard from in the presence, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. Thank you. Now that's scary, I know. Just, just raise your hand. No, i got to say it. <laughs> that's very good. So Paul talking to Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... These things in trust. So what did he do? He had this package, gave it to Timothy, and he was wanting Timothy to take that very little package and move over to others to give to them. Oh, but didn't Paul have a copyright on it? Didn't he get some registration through Library of Congress or some publishing thing? Or No. So how was he thinking? He wasn't thinking himself, and he wasn't thinking make money, and he wasn't thinking package stuff, and he wasn't thinking that. He was thinking, give it, pass it along. And that's what John shared with me. He said, listen, when I help you, it's like Paul helping Timothy, I want you to use it. I want you to use everything. Just take it and go with it, like it's yours. So I took an idea. We talked about it. The idea is, see, he's helping me. I go study it up work it through, apply it. We banner back and forth. I've used that in my life. Now guess whose it is? It was his. Now it's mine. It's like, now it's mine. So then when I'm helping my guy, I can use the same exact thing he did, but it's worked itself in and through me. It's not like knowledge only. And that's implied in the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, 
teaching them to observe all I commanded you. So Jesus commanded them. They're to take that now and use it here. There's not a copyright on it. I, that impressed me. So um, Dawson's, one of Dawson's favorite talks was balance. And John picked it up, and I heard him share this many times. So I'll just go. I've got an introductory thing, and then I want to get in some points. One of the things that, that helps me with balance uh, don't get a big head. You know, sometimes you can feel pretty good about something pretty cocky, like you got it down, and da 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 da. One thing that helps me with that is to go back to Genesis 1. You remember the creation. We all know the creation. Now, he makes the elements and all the, the, the framework, and then on day 5, the fish and all that swims in the seas, the birds and all that fly in the air. Then on day 6, all living things on earth, from the bug to the dinosaur. He made all that on day 6. And then he makes man, man and woman. Now, I, why does that help me? Well, who am I? I'm only a created being. That's it. It's not like I'm God. It's not like I'm the end all that begets all. I'm just Mark. You know, God made me by extension through humans. So my parents... But then each one of them had parents, had parents, had parents, had parents, had parents. So God made them, Adam and Eve, and he didn't make any more. He had caused them to be able to, to reproduce. Hmm. So that helps me with a big head. All right, let me go through my, let me shift, get all my little stuff here. So I want to talk about nature. When you observe God creating... Everything is in balance. Then the fall happened. What's funny is, even in the midst of the fall, somehow there's balance. Have you noticed that? Even in the midst of the fall, things in there. So what I want to do is go through and just mention some things. The tribe in India. Tigers are a nuisance in India. I didn't realize this. I went on a little study. 80% of the tigers in the world live in India. I did not know that. And in the 40s, um, in early 50s, there was really a problem. I think they had over 40,000 tigers everywhere, and they all were hungry. So they became man-eaters. I went back and looked. There's all these articles and cases of issues with tigers attacking people all the time. Well, this one tribe got permission from authorities, and they decided to do something about it. So they went on a rampage and hunted all the tigers out. So now there was no threat. Well, guess what happened? The baboons. So what happened was their gardens got eaten by baboons. So there was an overpopulation of baboons, and, and so then now they had a problem. Are we going to live? Are we going to face the tigers? So they brought the tigers back in and had to deal with it, and the baboons got under control because tigers eat baboons. That's funny. Well... That, what is that? That's balance. And like manner, I was, at, I was spending the night at, at, down at the home place where I grew up. I go to bed, and it's real quiet and peaceful. Then I hear this, I won't be able to imitate it, this shrill scream. 
all this, and it's like a woman being tortured out in the woods or something. And I lay there and I listen. And I go, what is going on? And I, then it quit. So then I went to sleep. Next day, this lady crossed the street. She said, oh, that's coyotes. I said, what? She said, oh, yeah, every night. She said, it is awful. I said, yeah, sound it, it just sounded like a woman being like tortured or something. She said, I know. She said, it's got that high, shrill voice. So I talked to the next-door neighbor, this guy, and he told me what's... I said, I never heard of coyotes down here. He said, well, there never was. He said, what happened was the U.S. Steel, who owns a lot of land, like thousands of acres, they decided to um, tree harvest, so they... They did clearing on all the land. And then they came in and plant new trees, you know, ro crop rotation. The deer, there's not as many hunters as there used to be. So the deer multiplied and they're starving. So what do the deer do? They eat their little trees. So they didn't want to spend all that money. So they, somebody had the idea, well, who eats deer? Ah, coyotes eats deer. So they went out west and brought in the coyote. Oh, then the deer got under control. The trees started doing better. And now what you got? I don't know what eats coyotes, but they're around. This guy said, I could stand in my house and look out the back and I could see eyes. He said, it's weird. People were losing their pets. <laughs> so he goes, he got him a, he, he got him a, a rifle and um, an infrared scope or something where he could see at night. He was shooting them, just pecking them off out of there. To the, but I go, see, nature is in balance, and you observe it. I'm calling attention to this to make personal application later. Nature is amazing how God has made this creation to function. Think of a lake and think of a sea. So there's the little algae, little things eat that, small fish eat, fish eat that. Then the larger fish eat the smaller fish, and it goes on up the pecking order, and hopefully we catch the big ones. Right, And hopefully the big ones don't eat us. <laughs> so there's a chain there. Also, you think of pollinating flowers. I looked that up. Flowers are pollinated by birds, bees, bats, butterflies, moths, beetles. As animals move through uh, an area, they'll carry pollen from one plant to another. Water and wind carry pollen, all from flower to flower, because plants, and I got a website where I went and read all. It's just amazing. Think of that. Think of all that going on, and we don't even do anything about it. It just happens. The sun. The sun, as far as we're concerned, I've researched it, only gives 2 to 3% of all the energy from the sun, we actually use up 2 to 3%. That seems like not much. But what happens is the photosynthesis on the leaves of all the plants takes in carbon dioxide, uses the sun's energy, and gives off oxygen. And what do we do? We breathe in oxygen and gives off, give off carbon dioxide. The plants need to breathe in what we breathe out. And so it's this cycle. Another cycle, the water cycle. Think of that. So th three-quarters of the earth is covered in water. One old farmer guy said, that settles it, and he's telling his wife, God meant for a man to fish three times more than work the land. 
But if you think about it, there are areas where you have too much rain. What happens when you have too much rain? Flooding. What happens when you have too little rain? Drought. Not good. Balance is a necessity. So I wanted just to show you why do rabbits multiply so fast? I actually asked that question and went looking around. The reason is there's so many animals that use the rabbit for food. Rabbits give birth. They bring a litter three to four times a year. Your child wants a rabbit for a pet. Go get them a rabbit. Get them male and female. Just see what happens. This high productivity evidently furnishes food. Mountain lion, bobcat, coyotes, all these feed on the bunnies. And I think our cats next door ran ours off, so we used to have them under the shrubs, but the next door cats, we think they've eaten them, I don't know. But only 80% of rabbit babies, 85% don't make it to their first birthday. Of all those births, only 15% live because most of them are eaten. <laughs> Isn't that funny? But it's balance. It's, it's nature. It's how God has put things together. Balance is a necessity. Look up Luke 16, 9. But I'm going to say something while you're looking it up. Without balance... Okay, let's think about balance. We've got a, a seesaw. Remember, you got the fulcrum... And the seesaw, and kids love it. It's at a park, maybe your backyard. And what happens? You do this. Up, down, down, up, down. So it's a teeter-totter balance. And that's what I'm throwing out to you in life. That's what we got. We got things that pull us this way and that way. We got to get a balance. Without balance, the whole apple cart is upset. You might say balance is what we don't have in our bank account. A man's strong point can become his weak point. Like a rich fellow. He has power to gain friends, but he might lose it by being stingy or self-absorbed with his riches. But now Luke 16.9 has a, a good way of looking at it. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. See, God blesses you with wealth. Use it for His purposes. Use it to bless people instead of being stingy. That is an excellent verse on using this world's goods. You want to open doors and you want to bless people. Turn to Proverbs 18, 11. This is a counterbalance to the Luke 16, 9. Turn to Proverbs 18, 11. A rich man's wealth is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. A rich man's wealth, what he's earned, what he's profit, what he's saved up, what he's accumulated, how the stock market exploded or he sold a company for a couple mil or something. That is his fortified city, so he can hide behind it. He's got walls, see? He can hide behind it. He's independent because he doesn't need anyone because he's self-supported. This is the danger of money. It says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a, what did you say, CJ? Like a high wall in his own imagination. 
That's interesting. In his own imagination. So riches can be a curse because it can cause him to withdraw because he doesn't have any needs. That's sad. As opposed to Luke 16, 9, where he's involved with people and blessing people. Your gifts. So one might be your wealthy. Another might be your uh, strength. John Crawford used to talk about his brother-in-law. He went to college on a football scholarship. He called him a fine specimen of a man, very strong. But he overdid it. He would push and push, and he was strong, and he knew it, and he just kept going. He developed a heart murmur early in his life and died by age 50. And it was sad, he thought. But it was like a, a gift. Um, a man's strong point can become his weak point. No, it's just a saying. And, and then, but you observe it. So see, you're gifted in making money. Now what happens? How do you use it? And you can use it in a bad way and it double back on you bad, see? Or you use it this other way. Or like you've got strength. All right. God is a God of balance. Balance is a necessity. Watch getting out of balance. So, don't go hog wild on a point regardless of what it is. A typical thing is, someone comes to Christ. All of a sudden their world has shifted. And now they're on the truth they're on Jesus. They get excited. Now I'm talking about me. So I got so fired up. I spent, I was in school down at Auburn. I was, I was trying to get into dental school. And I'd come to the end of my ropes, surrendered to Christ. And this guy with navigators was meeting with me. So I was going in quiet time. I had prayer. I had Bible study. I was also in all these hard courses. And I would go to some fun things. But, I mean, I was so focused on the Lord because I hadn't been before. I was focused on a party lifestyle. Well, I, that summer I learned the topical memory system, the whole topical memory system in one summer because I was plowing on a tractor and there's not a lot of, you know, you can really focus when you're riding a tractor. And so I worked on the TMS there. Well, a young Christian can get so fired up they get a few verses of scriptures on the table of their heart, and then they take it on themselves to square away people. And so they're going to take on a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, or they're, you know, they're, and then they know a thing or two, and they can quote some verses. And, um, and so then what happens is there's offenses. Well, see, this little guy's not balanced. He's overboard because he's excited, but he's immature but he gets all pumped up and then he offends people. Well, that's wonderful. That's what we need. Especially bringing the word navigator in that, you know, because he's all fired up. Well, they don't do it the navigator way or something like that. Well, this happened to me, actually. It's really weird. So I was working on this talk and God brought to mind something I had done and I had not thought of this in years. I went to the little home church where I grew up and I was up in a classroom, and uh, a fellow was teaching the class. And I was in the class, and I'd learned the topical memory system. So he's teaching out of a quarterly. So we open the quarterly, and he goes through. Now, he's pre-studied, and he's got his scriptures and stuff. 
So we're going through, and he says, turn to so-and-so. And I go, ah, 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 like that, you know, like the stupid kid that's a, the pest. And he says, yes, Mark. And I said, can I quote it? I said, he said, okay. So I quoted it, you know. So then he goes to the next one. So-and-so look up, so, ah, ah, ah. Well, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, the topical memory system is amazing. It's 60 cards, and you hardly hear a message or hear a talk that, that doesn't come from one of those cards. It's, it's just so core to the Christian faith. And so um, then after a while I noticed he didn't, he didn't kind of want to, uh, uh, he, it's not like he's wanting to talk, you know. So God brought that to mind. I called a cousin and got his phone number and called him up. He's 85. And I said, um, Jerry, this is Mark. And, I, and Mark Stevens. And he said, well, hey, Mark. And I said, blah, blah. And I said, Jerry, I'm preparing a message, uh, giving it to some men, and something came to mind. I think it's from God, and I need to bring it up. And I said, is there anything between us? What? I said, is there anything? No. And then I related this incident. Anyway, I asked his forgiveness. He said he didn't even remember it, so it's not a problem. But he said, I'll forgive you anyway. Isn't that something? Why is that? Because we're out of balance. See, it's, it, the zeal of the young Christian gets him in trouble. All right. Let me make a statement. Write this down. Truth seldom lies in extremes. Truth seldom lies in extremes. Truth carried to the extreme no longer gives a true picture. Truth carried to the extreme no longer gives a true picture. It's the idea of balance. So you have over here and you have over here. But see, we'll latch on to this over here and run with it and beat it and, and get on board and try to be this truth evangelist. But then what about the counterbalance over here? Interesting. So I want to introduce three terms to you. Contradiction, paradox, and antinomy. Contradiction is actually opposite. It opposes. Both can't be true. It's like this. It's a contradiction. Now, a paradox, it seems to contradict, but there's actually an explanation where it really doesn't contradict. So the paradox is a seeming contradiction, but not really. For example, paradox. When blackberries are green, they're red. Now, someone didn't, wouldn't know, they'd go, well, which are they, green or red? When blackberries are green, they're red. Now, what's the answer to that little riddle? Well, I changed the meaning of the word green on you. The word green means not ripe yet. <laughs> but see, it's also a color. So see, if I heard you say, when blackberries are green, they're red, you got three colors in there. Which is it? See, it seems contradictory. But is it? No. Because there's an explanation. When blackberries are green, they're red, and then when they ripen, they turn black. So anyway, you, think, you see, that's a paradox. Now, I, I thought it was for years antimony, but it's antinomy. Antimony is, is element 51 on the periodic chart. <laughs> it's a metal. 
but antinomy, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y, it seems to contradict, but unlike a paradox, you can't quite resolve it. That is resolved in God. Now let's think about this. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well. Uh, they were talking about worship. You said you Jews worship down in Jerusalem and we worship up here. It's kind of like who used to say who's right. Jesus said, well, God is, what's God? Spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Hmm. So then God is everywhere. God knows everything. Now, what do I know? It's confined right here. Now, is there going to be something that I won't get? But I don't understand it. I go, well, you're limited. You got this amount of space, man. You got this amount of space. I mean, God is spirit. So there's going to be a lot of things in the Bible. The Bible's filled with paradox and filled with antinomy. Also, I want to say, okay, an example of antinomy. There is no absolute truth. What did I just do? I made you an absolute statement. But what I say? There's no absolute truth. That is an antinomy. So how is it resolved? I don't know. Is God, can God make everything? Is He all-powerful? Yes. Can He make a stone He cannot move? Well, see, that to me is filled with contradiction, is paradox, and I don't know. But I want to just throw out that, that what, can, what really has helped me with a lot of scriptural issues is that it's filled with paradox and it's filled, that is explained if I knew a little more, like the blackberry red green thing. Also, it's filled with antinomies that are only explained by God. And there's got to be a lot of things I don't understand. So a lot of doctrinal quarrels and issues, I, a lot of that I just go, wait a minute. This man has a point, this man has a point. So what I need to do is not pick a side. I need to seek to understand. Now that's, that's helped me a lot. Let me throw out one more concept. One side, oh yeah, one side, God's, let me just say this. God's word doesn't contradict itself. One side must be held in balance with the other. John Crawford used to quote this guy. He was a professor at Yale. And you can write this down. Sometimes dialectic tensions of opposing views. Dialectic. It's not dialectric. I was messed up on that. I thought It's no R. D-I-A-L-E-C-T-I. Dialectical. C-A-L. Dialectical tensions of opposing views are nearer to the truth than dogmatic pronouncements. So you have tensions. Dialectic tensions are opposing views, and taken together, they're nearer to the truth than dogmatic pronouncements. I want to give you an illustration. Think of a teepee, the old Indian motif, a teepee. So Carol said in our garden, she said, I want a teepee. I said, a what? A teepee. So we've got these beds. She said, yeah, we had, at the time we had all these little kids coming through and she was showing them about the garden. She wanted them to have fun. So she wanted to plant green beans that would run up the poles and then she had a picture that we would leave one pole out so you could go in there. And then all the, all the green would go around and the beans would hang down inside so they could go in and pick the beans, you know. 
Now let's go build it. So I got uh, two by twos that were rough cut and cedar and eight feet long. So I'm six and that's, they're about to right here, but I had to get a ladder to get them up. So then I drilled holes to pull, you know, pull something. So you've got a pole here and leans this way and a pole here leans this way. Now, if you just set that up there, what's going to happen to it? So you got to have a pole that way and a pole that way. And then you bisect those angles and you wind up with all those poles. And then we left this one out for the end. Well, but the, I'm going after the illustration. All of those poles are acting in dialectic tension. So this one is pushing against this one, is pushing against this one, is pushing against this one. What do you get? A teepee. <laughs> if you just have two, you get poles on the ground. <laughs> but see, that is the way to think about it in life a lot of times. I went through and have listed out in detail and done studies on these. Time is not going to let me do it. All right, write them down. Faith versus works. These are dialectic tensions in Scripture. Faith versus works. Liberty, not license. These are points. Just go down and make these points. Faith versus works. Liberty, not license. Old Testament versus New Testament. Pleasing God versus pleasing men. Vocational work versus full-time Christian work. God teaches me versus man teaches me. Next one. What the Bible teaches versus what the Bible says. All right? I'll read them all again. Start at the top. Faith versus works. Next one. Liberty, not license. Next one. Old Testament versus New Testament. Next one. Pleasing God versus pleasing men. Next one. Vocational work versus full-time work. Next one, God teaches me versus man teaches me. Next one, what the Bible teaches versus what the Bible says. And here's the point. When we get on some truth, try to study the balancing truth. Beware of, oh, I found a secret in the Bible. Have you discovered the great truth yet? The great truth of... What's wrong with that? It may be out of balance. Probably is. In your personal life, in your balance, keeping focus in mind, I go to Luke 2.52. Now, we'll just quote it. Who knows it? And Jesus grew. You know it? Quote it. Wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Mental, physical, social, and spiritual. Now, what's interesting is, did Jesus succeed? Yes. Well, here, here is, that was from age 12 to age 30 with Jesus. Well, then the question is, how do we take it? We could take it for growing up years, or could you take it for all your life? Now, I've chosen to take that for all my life. I come back to this verse with the principles it contains. Oh, by the way, Jesus really succeeded on the favor with man. When a non-believer talks about Jesus, what do they say? He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a prophet. 
They never say he's a bad guy. So he succeeded. Favor with man. <laughs> Even a non-Christian thinks of him as a good guy. Isn't that funny? So I thought, wow, down through the ages, he succeeded in Luke 2.52 on the favor with man. In marriage, I want to bring up marriage. You can use this thinking, the idea of balance, this position, that position, the idea of dialectic tensions being opposed in your marriage. It's very, very helpful. I know of uh, four personality tests that Carol and I participated in. They've really helped us. One is the Myers-Briggs. It has helped us the most. They have the energy scale. There's extrovert, introvert. Well, what am I? I'm not an introvert. Some guy said, you don't have an introverted bone in your body. I said, well, maybe not. Larry, you're laughing. You're one of them too. <laughs> extrovert. And then, it, so an introvert is where you get your energy. An introvert needs to be recharged, an extrovert feeds on the environment. I meet with people. I come in, Carol says, I don't see how you do it. She'll meet with a woman halfway through the second one, she's ready for bed. So she has to withdraw and feed and, and get charged up. People charge me up. People charge me up. Well, that's different when you're relating to each other. Then another scale was how you perceive reality. So I'm a very sensing person. I, I go through what my senses read. It's right in front of me. She's intuitive. She walks into a room and takes a read. So it's the idea of possibilities and patterns as opposed to every little thing. Then there's a, a scale called the thinking-feeling scale. Well, that's how you make your decisions. I will reason through. She has a sense and a feel about it. That's different on how you make your decisions. Another one is how you prefer your environment. When you open the drawer, is everything like this? Or when you open the drawer, is it kind of, maybe you can get the drawer open, maybe you can't. You know, that kind of thing. On the shelf, or on the shelf. <laughs> So see, we're different in those ways. Every personality test we've taken, we're different from each other. We hardly have any overlap. So what is that produced in a marriage? A lot of problems or a lot of conversation or a lot of give and take. But see, when you're in your marriage, you've got to understand God meant for one man to be married to one woman and them to be married all their life. So you've got to deal with stuff. And there's certain things that you have in common. There's certain things you don't. And you've got to work through all of it. And that helps you be a better person. But this dialectic tension is in marriage. It's in your personal growth and your personal life. It's in your married life. And it's in your parenting. And I've got two scales on parenting. Authoritative, permissive. That's the two extremes. Let's go to the permissive first. They're carefree. Children make their decisions. Parents hardly say no. There's a lack of discipline. The children usually have the last say. On the authoritative, they set boundaries and they're firm, but usually they're open to discussion. They do try to include the children in the thinking, but the parents have the last say. I grew up in a very authoritative home. 
My wife grew up in a very permissive home. Boy, we had issues. At the first, we had to work through on the issue of spanking. That was the first thing. And then, like, how to deal with the children. So it's really, really interesting. Dialectic tension. Is, is one right and one wrong? No. That's what I had to figure out, is I used to have a right-wrong mentality. She's right, she's wrong, I'm right, I'm... No, get that out of your vocabulary. It's preferences. It's not, I'm right, she's wrong, it's my way, her way. That's helped me. Like with God, it's a bigger thing, and they seem to contradict, but it's filled with paradox, it's filled with antinomies. There's dialectic tensions built in Scripture, there's dialectic tension built in nature, there's dialectic tension built in your life. You want to focus on Jesus. The Matthew 6.33 your walk with God in righteousness and His kingdom, expanding His kingdom. But you can't do it. One of the guys that I was going to talk about wrote this quote. Remember, you are not a tree that can live and stand alone firm. We picture ourselves like a tree. Jesus said, we're a branch. Remember, you're not a tree that can live or stand alone. You're only a branch. It is only while you abide in Christ as the branch in the vine that you will flourish or even live. And that's the John 15, 4 and 5, to do His commission. Dear Lord, I just pray now that these thoughts might have encouraged the guys. Help us to think big, O Lord. Help us to not grab on to a truth and just be dogmatic about it and evangelist over one thing that's not balanced. Help us to be balanced so that we appeal to people and they see that we're balanced and we have a true walk with you and there's love coming out of us. Help us to be firm in the scriptures and know the scriptures, but to deal with people with love and to be balanced in our lives, in our marriages, in our child rearing, at our work, to be balanced in our theology, to be balanced in our hearts. Help us to come after you in a balanced way. You're a balanced God, but stay focused on what you want us to be about. In Christ's name, amen.